It's great to be with you this morning. I did graduate 140 years ago. So uh, my father graduated here in 1968, actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm here to, uh, as, a, as an example to you, a shining example, that very average, mediocre students can make something out of their life. So for the rest of you out there uh, who are challenged, uh, welcome to the tribe. We can, we can do it. My father was, he graduated magna cum laude or something like that, and, uh, and I did not. But, uh, um, and many of the professors kept comparing. They'd say, you're Harry Clifton's son. Yes. He was far more scholarly than you. I think, well, thank you. Anyway, it was a delight, though, a, a real honor a few years ago. This, this seminary really honored me by, by uh, sec- selecting me as, as alumni of the year, and, and the most wonderful thing about that, because they had, they had no idea when they did that, that the seminary years ago had also selected my father as alumni of the year. And so he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but uh, his ministry still impacts my life. I love this seminary greatly. I live 30, 40 miles west of here in uh, the big metropolis of Linwood, Kansas. 400 people live there. And um, it's a great place, no stoplights. You don't have to use your turn signal because everybody knows where you're going anyway. So it works out really well. And um, 40 million Americans live in rural America. It's one of the most unreached mission fields in North America. And uh, as Dr. Allen said, that little church closed its doors, the Methodist church had closed its doors, and in in a wonderful way, God uh, used our ministry and others there to reopen that church and to make it a viable place once again. I want to show you this picture here. This is where I preached last Sunday morning. This is not Linwood. Uh, there you go. Go back. There you go. Actually, I'd rather look at that than me. So you can go there. But uh, hey, it's a great church. It's here in Metro Kansas City. It's not that unusual. If you'd have shown up at this church, that particular church, when I was a student at seminary, or even after that, there would have been 250, 300 people in that sanctuary. And Sunday morning when I preached there, there were about 30. And you did notice they all spread out, so it looked like there were more people there. That's why. No, that's a joke. Anyway, way back there, way over here. Southern Baptists realize the closure of 800 churches a year. And unless you think those are churches where nobody lives... 77% of those churches are in communities that actually grew in population in the previous decade. 80% of those communities are greater than 100,000 people. We are closing churches where we need churches. And this stat, stat will really, I think, shock us, or it should. In the year 2000, the median size of worship in a Southern Baptist church what was, a, was 137. That means half of our churches had more than 137 in worship in the year 2000, and half had less. Today, 23 years later, that number is 67. Half of our churches have less than 67 in worship on Sunday morning. Another way of looking at it is this. In 2000, 65% of our churches averaged well over 100. Today, 
less than 45%, and that number's dropping. And people are beginning to use terms like microchurch, really small, small churches, in a nation that desperately needs to hear the gospel. It's where I live, it's what I do, it's what our team across North America does. We work with churches that are about to close their doors, and these are churches that believe the gospel. They're churches that believe in the Bible from Genesis to the map in the back. These are churches that trust Jesus, but these are churches that are closing their doors, and they're frustrated, and they don't know why, but there are reasons why they're closing their doors. But the good news is this. There is a movement of God across this land to reclaim dying churches. Because here's what I want you to know this morning more than anything else. We replant and revitalize churches for one reason and one reason only, and that is for God's glory. Because a dying church robs God of his glory. God is new glory from that church, and when that church dies, it robs God of his glory. When that church was planted, somebody raised the banner of God's glory in that place, and striking those colors is tragic. I spent most of my ministry planting churches in Quebec and in Kansas and Nebraska and in Georgia, and I didn't even pay attention to dying churches until God got a hold of my heart and made me realize that a dying church robs God of his glory, and a church does not need to die. Look, We always say, well, the church has a lifespan, and we were so quick to give up on churches, like some would be so quick to give up on the church that was in that picture. But but the church doesn't have an identifiable lifespan. Nowhere in the New Testament do you see the lifespan of a church. I know you say, well, those first century churches aren't there. Well, well, this one's the one on that picture was only like 60 years old, not 2,000 years old. We're so quick to give up on churches when there's a nation that needs every gospel church we have. The reality of it is, if you're preparing for ministry, you're going to go to a church like that. You're going to go to a church probably of 60 or less or 100 or less. I'm not bragging, but I've never pastored a church more than 150. I'm just saying. That's just the... That's my limit. I think God has said, that's your skill level, Clifton, and that's where it's going to be. And And that's okay. That's 90% of our churches almost. It's great. And if those churches are doing what Linwood's doing, impacting the community, making disciples, uh, seeing people come to know Christ, raising up pastors and and elders and and missionaries, that's perfect. I mean, the wonderful thing about Southern Baptist is we have 45,000 churches. That's more churches than, than, than Starbucks. That's more churches than McDonald's. I mean, we have churches everywhere, but so many of them are struggling. And 800 a year actually close their doors. We've all been moved lately by the the thought of spiritual awakening that we've seen at Asbury and other places. We don't know what that means and and the the Jesus Revolution movie that's coming out and all of that, and none of us really know what that means. But wouldn't it be just like God to have a movement of of reclaiming dying churches before he breathes a a new and wonderful breath of of spiritual awakening in our continent, and then all these churches that were dead and declining are now vital and healthy and can, can be part of that? That's my prayer. Take your Bibles, if you have it, and look at the book of Genesis, chapter 26. When I was at Warnell, I went to Warnell Road uh, Baptist Church. Many of you know that church. Maybe some here are members of that church. I went there in 2005 or six, And that first Sunday, we had 18 elderly people in the building that seated 610. 
And I knew it seated 610 because above the door it said fire code occupancy, 610. So we could cram 592 more in there if they showed up that day. But we had 18. And in an amazing way, God did a fantastic work to bring a church that was completely, from every standpoint, dead, back to vibrant life. That church is making such an impact on our community and on the world. And I just want, I want to give you an idea today that there are tens of thousands of Warnell Roads and Linwoods out there just waiting to be replanted and revitalized. Now, it is not easy work. It is not. And the cool thing is, you're not going to do it on your own ability or your own strength. If you're going to do that, you're going to totally rely on the power of the gospel. And that's a great place to be. So when I was at at uh, Linwood, one of the young elders that we had was a man named Danny Moore, who was a PhD student here in, in, in Old Testament. And now Danny's teaching at a seminary in New England. And I, I shared with him one time, I was going to share this text in this way. And I, I said, Danny, I, I know this is not what this text is talking about. You know, I know it's not talking about church revitalization in Genesis 26, but I really want to share it. He said, well, you're right. It's not talking about church revitalization. He said, why don't you just say, devotionally, this is what this text says to me. (laughs) They'll recommend this as your best preaching style. But I wrestled with this last night. I wanted to come in here and just open the scripture and preach a message. I love to do that. But what I'm going to give you today is more of a syllabus of revitalizing a dying church. And, And as I was reading this some time ago, it gripped me because all I could think of was dying churches all across our land. So listen to these words from Genesis 26. And we'll begin with verse 15. The Philistines had stopped up and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You're much mightier than we are. So Isaac departed from there, and he camped in the valley of Gerah and settled there. In verse 18, Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped up. Oh, God, please. I've got nothing to say in my flesh. You have men and women in this room that before the foundation of the world, you knew they would be here to hear this message. So speak through me as only you can. Unclog our ears and remove the scales from our eyes so that we can hear you and see you and Understand what it is in this message you want us to hear and to accomplish for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have churches all across North America that have been filled in with dirt by the adversary. If you'd been there and looked at that desert, it would have looked dry and helpless. But there were wells there. They they were just covered up. It looked like nothing was there. It looked like nothing could live there. But if you, if you dug again those wells, down there was water, life-giving water that, that that land desperately needed that was necessary for life. Oh, dear people, I look across North America, and it is a vast desert. It is a dry place. It needs the living water of Christ. It needs the gospel. And I see stopped up wells here and there and churches all over that haven't baptized anybody, that aren't reaching anybody, that are at the point of closure or maybe are closing 800 a year Southern Baptist churches. 
in a land of dry land and you know that there is still water there. And what I pray every day and what I will give the rest of my life for, every moment I have, every breath I have, every passion I have is to raise up men and women who will say, I will go dig again those wells. Now, how are they, how are they stopped up? Well, if, if you'll come to lunch today, we have some extra lunches. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that. And I, look, what I'm giving you today is like a whole semester, all right? So this is more of a syllabus, as I said. I'm going to run through this as quick as I possibly can. There are about 15 or 20 reasons we see across... I'm not going to give you all of those. Don't worry. We see across North America why churches primarily struggle. Let me give you just three or four. These aren't in any order. But one of the primary reasons churches die, one of the things you have to dig out and unclog is the remaining members have made an idol out of the way they do church in that place. Everything else in their life has changed tragically. Many of them are elderly people. And, and the jobs they no longer had, they used to have. And they're no longer considered important in the community the way they once were. They may have had a very important job sometimes, and now it's gone. Their health is failing. Their loved ones are passing away. They don't see their children and their grandchildren. They, they, don't, they don't know how to use some of the technology that's out there. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how many apps I have on my smart TV. I don't understand how my smart TV works. All I know is if I want to watch K-State play football, i got to get some other app all the time. or some. My wife looked the other day and she said, you have all these things on our TV. I said, I don't know. I just click on and say I want to watch it. She says, you know that costs us money. No, I didn't realize that. <laughs> you get to be my age, it gets pretty frustrating. I have four grandsons under the age of 10. They've never heard a dial tone on a phone, all right? They have no idea. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> and so when you... When everything, and then I haven't even talked about the cultural changes. You all here in your 20s and 30s, you think the culture has changed quickly for you. Try being in your 70s. But there is one place every week you can go for a couple of hours, and it's the greatest place in the world. You can park in the same parking spot. You can walk in the same door. You can inhale and take that wonderful smell of stale old church building. Most of us who grew up in churches, you could blindfold us and put us in a church basement, and we would go, this is a church basement. (laughs) Yankee Candle could come up with church basement, and we would know what it was. It's not a good smell, but it's a familiar smell. You walk down the hall, you sit in the same classroom with the same picture of Jesus in Gethsemane with his hands folded. You come into the sanctuary, you sit in the same place, just like in that picture. Maybe there's nobody in four rows from you, but that's where you've sat for 40 years. So you sit right there. And you look at the same baptistry painting. I grew up where there was baptistry paintings behind us. My dad always wanted to close the curtain, but we couldn't close the curtain because somebody painted that. I was 14 before I saw the squirrel in the tree in the baptistry. And then I couldn't unsee it every Sunday morning. I joke about all of that. But you understand how that people's lives are are so drastically changing. Having a place they can hang on to. See, among other things, an idol is something we run to for comfort, for meaning, and for security. But you know something's a false idol if you're afraid of losing it. So the first thing you have to do And I'm not going to be able to talk about other... I had five on here. You don't have any idea how much good stuff you're missing. But the first thing, the first thing is you have to get these remaining members' hearts to warm back to the gospel. You don't get them 
to lay down that idol by shaming them to it or guilting them to it. You give them something far more precious to cherish, and that's the gospel. Many other ways that churches die, but that's just one of the things you'll have to do. So how do we dig these? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> this is how, people say, how do you revitalize the church? It's not a program. It's not an agenda. It's not a conference. It's not a book. It's not a workbook. It's not a weekend event. It's Jesus who revitalizes his church. It's the gospel that revitalizes the church. And really, truthfully, there's no such thing as a revitalization pastor or a replant pastor. There's just a pastor called to replant a church. Pastor called to revitalize the church. But in that calling, you have to understand the task that is before you. And if you don't have the giftedness or the desire to develop those gifts, you probably shouldn't be a replanting and revitalizing pastor. It's pretty simple what it takes to revitalize a dying church. You preach, pray, love, and stay. And I know that's true because our replant team has a lot of swag, like T-shirts and stuff and coffee mugs, and it says, preach, pray, love, and stay. So what more do you need? It's just, you know, got to be true. But it is true. You preach. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. This is what, you go to a dying church, I know you want to paint over the baptistry, you want to take the silk plants off the, you know, that they've got dust all over them, you know. You want to take down the bulletin board that still has stuff from 1986. You want to do all this stuff, you know. Fine, that's not going to change anybody's heart. It's not going to do anything but make those older people upset. Let me tell you what changes people's heart. Let me tell you what you do when you go to a dying church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, and I came to you, brothers, and I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come in with my own plans to revitalize this church and my strategies, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we don't come and teach philosophy. We don't come and talk about politics. We come and talk about the only thing that matters, the only thing that can change lives, and that is the resurrected Jesus Christ. But listen to me. Listen carefully. In, in Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says this. Because our gospel came to you not only in word. Oh, listen. I mean, I'm not even going to get halfway through this. But listen, you can't just go to a church and read things. You can't go to a church and preach practiced sermons. Paul said, my gospel, our message did not just come to you in word only. But also, and this is what a dying church has to have, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It has to be the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your preaching, the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. Sometimes I'm afraid we rely far too much on our sermon prep. We'll spend hours and hours and hours on sermon prep, and we've got it all down, and this is really good, and it's really logical. But Martin Lord jones says preaching is logic on fire, and the fire is the Holy Spirit. And you are not going to revitalize the church unless the wind of the breath of the Holy Spirit is in your preaching. And here's the good thing. You don't have to be all that good for the Holy Spirit to be in your preaching. In fact, sometimes if you are a pretty good speaker, you may not rely on the Holy Spirit near as much as one 
who realizes their weaknesses. You preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You preach Christ in every message. These people in this church need to know that in terms of their justification, not their sanctification, but in terms of their justification, it doesn't matter at all what they've done for this church in the last 40 years. They could, have given, they, could have, they could have given way above their tithe. They could have put on the roof themselves. They could have been the janitor for years. It doesn't matter what they've done in terms of their justification. The work you do perhaps does have some sanctifying work if you do it right. But in terms of justification, all the work they've done in the last 40 years. Sometimes when I go to dying churches and we see that God's going to do some new things, some of the first things the older members say is, well, don't forget us older members. We pay the bills around here. No, you don't. (laughs) This church belongs to Jesus. He'll pay the bills around here. I don't say it quite like that, but I say it. And so, absolutely, you you have to to show them in every way that this church belongs to Christ. And it doesn't matter what they've done for the last church, church in the last 40 years. Here's how you teach them the gospel. And you don't do it in one sermon, you do it in conversations, you do it in discipleship, you walk through life with them, you overwhelm those remaining members. I love what Jared Wilson said. You're, you're, you're remaining, or, or, or Jared Wilson said, too many of us are in love with the church we wanted, not the church we have. And Henry Blackaby used to always say, your remaining members are not an obstacle to your ministry, they are your ministry. Whatever. The dysfunctional ones that are there, the unhappy ones that are there. They're wounded saints. They need your love and care. They need your shepherding. And yes, it's going to take a long time. And nobody's going to write books about you or even tweet about you because you're not going to show big numbers anywhere. But you're doing the work of the Father where he's called you to his church that he loves. And you have to get these people through the preaching of the gospel, through discipling them, through gospel conversations, for them to realize it doesn't matter at all what I've done for this church in the last 40 years. All that matters is what Jesus has done for me in the last 40 seconds. That all of my work combined won't buy me one minute outside of hell. The only reason I've moved from death to life is what Jesus keeps doing for me. And this church belongs to him. Preach. Second thing, pray. Colossians 1.9, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we've not ceased praying for you. You never cease praying. You are in spiritual warfare up above your eyeballs. Piper says prayer is wartime communication. I could spend all day on that. You are not going to revitalize the church unless you become a person of intense, constant, ceaseless prayer. It doesn't happen without prayer. But with prayer, it happens. It is the power. It is the force. It is absolutely imperative. <sighs> Preach, pray. And you know, when I know, probably, I'm sure, I would assume that somewhere in the New Testament, they, 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 they prayed for lost people by name. But oftentimes when we come together in our churches, even this little church here, whatever church I've worked with on Wednesday night, they may have a prayer meeting. They'll come together. They'll pray for the sick and afflicted. I guess those are two different categories. I don't know. Pray for the shut-ins, you know, that they could get out, I guess. I don't know. I'm being facetious. But we have these lists of things we pray for, and that's all right. James tells us to pray for those who are sick among us. And then sometimes we pray for the lost, and that's okay. But you know who they prayed for in the New Testament? Themselves, that they would be bold in their witness. 
Actually, when Paul's writing, he's not praying necessarily to the jailers by name. He says this, pray for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You pray for yourselves to be bold in the sharing of the gospel. You preach, you pray, you love. Luke 10, 33, the Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and he had compassion on him. The difference between the priest and the Levite was not doctrine. It was not clothing. It was not wisdom. It was not knowing the scripture. It was how many times he spent in worship. The difference between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan was the Samaritan had compassion. You will not revitalize a church unless your heart is broken for the lost and you have compassion for people that aren't anything like you. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, we know that is all at one time. And it makes sense. Jerusalem's where they live. Judea is the outer region. And the rest of the earth, well, it's the rest of the earth. So why would he put Samaria there? Because he knew Samaria was the place across the street that you didn't want to go and that you thought shouldn't be there. And you don't get a pass on those places you don't like. And you don't get a pass on those people who offend you and their lifestyles. You have to have compassion, and that only comes from Christ. The more time you spend at the cross, the more time you immerse yourself in the gospel, the more compassionate you will be. You preach, you pray, you love. As I said, you love the remaining members and get their hearts to warm the gospel. You say, what about unregenerate members? You probably have some. But I will promise you this, if you preach Christ, 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 they will become angry and upset and they will leave. They won't tell you I'm leaving because you're preaching Christ, but they will not stand for that week in and week out. You preach, pray, love. Oh, like the Samaritan. And what happened when the Samaritan had compassion? He went to him. Man, I was a teenager. I used to preach the lights out with this sermon. Are you ready? Here we go. You can, you can, this is a freebie. <laughs> I know this is chapel, but whatever. (laughs) First thing the Samaritan did, bending. He bent down. He got dirty. He quit going where he was going. He got on the level of that person and looked him in the eye. That's what compassion is, bending. Secondly, this this is so, so, well, whatever. Secondly, Tending. <laughs> he, he tended to his wounds. He, 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 there was something that was hurting, and he had to look awful. He had to look ugly. He was full of, 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 of blood, and he would have got, and the only thing he probably had to tend with was to tear his own clothes and wrap it, but he tended his hurt. And not only that, then he put him on a donkey, and he, he carried him into an inn, and he spent the night with him. That means he, he changed his clothes, and he brought him water, and he stayed up with him. Mending, that's one of the reasons they went past the priest and the Levite, because they knew if they stopped, they would, it would interrupt their life. And that's one of the reasons dying churches die, is they don't want to take the time to deal with the hurt that's all around them. And that's because they're not living in the gospel. But if you are going to have compassion, you will be people who will bend, who will, who will tend, and who will set people with people while they mend. And then he was also spending. <laughs> he spent his money. 
even an open-ended. And a lot of times in a revitalization, churches will say, how much is this going to cost us? It doesn't matter. Listen to me. Listen to me. Henry Blackaby said this so wonderfully. God is under no obligation, nor will he resource your plans for his church, but he'll spare nothing from heaven to resource his plan for his church. Just back there with Dr. Allen, and we're talking about Linwood and how small of a congregation it was and how small of a town it is, yet we've remodeled the building from end to end. We have a full-time pastor now in Howie Lucas, who's a student here. We've had massive, in terms of, you know, Linwood size, massive citywide events of four or 500 people attending. Well, how do you fund all that? Jesus funds it. I promise you, if it is his plan, he will find a way to fund it. You don't have to worry about that. The, the, the Samaritan even left an open-ended bill. Anything he needs. You preach, you pray, you love. You love your people. You love the community. And I would say this. The only way this introvert, who would just as soon stay in my basement and read history for the rest of my life, and not talk to anybody. I'm serious. People say, what do you crave in your life, Mark? I crave solitude. That is what I crave. (laughs) But God has put me in an incredibly visible place. And how how do I cope with that? It has to be my love relationship with Jesus. The more I love Jesus, the more I love people. The more I love Jesus, the more I love my community. The more I love Jesus, the more I love my family. The more I love Jesus, the more I love my enemies. And if I'm not loving my community and my family and my enemies and my church, it's because I'm not loving Jesus enough. Preach, pray, love. And the last one, stay. You know where I'm going to go with this probably. First Timothy, Paul, to that amazing young man in the faith. I urged you when I was at Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. He wanted to leave. Now listen, I want, if, if you want to be part of replanting, revitalizing, dying church, if, if, if you're not going to be a pastor, you're going to be, be in some other occupation, go to a dying church in your community and serve there. And our team, we would be delighted to give you all kinds of support and encouragement on what that means and what it takes. Because on your own, you're going to be like Timothy. You're going to say, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. I'm not having the results I thought I would have. I just need to go somewhere else. I hear almost weekly some dear pastor will email me and say, Mark, I think my work here is done. And and I listen and engage, but what I want to say is, I don't think that matters whether you think it's done or not. Most days, I think my work is done too, but Jesus has other ideas. And the fact that Timothy was ready to leave, and Paul says, Timothy, remain, remain, remain. Listen, in a revitalization, they're all different. God could open heaven, bring his Shekinah glory, breathe his breath across there, and you could have one weekend when the whole church transforms. But it appears God prefers to work through his servants over a long and difficult period of time, probably to edify us and cause us to depend on him more than ourselves. 
If Moses had just walked into Pharaoh on the first day and said, let my people go, and he said, all right, they can go, probably the people wouldn't have realized how desperate their captivity was. Well, we should have asked a long time ago. Or they would have thought that Moses was the most gifted speaker they've ever heard. But because all the trouble of leaving and all the plagues, among many other reasons, I get that, was to show them the depth of their, of their, of their slavery and their total dependence, not on Moses, but on God and what he could do. And listen, being placed in a church where the only thing that works is God is a good place to be. So he said, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you can break the 200 barrier? (laughs) So that you can grow the church numerically? No. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine that is different, nor devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies which promote speculations. Now, I know many of you New Testament scholars don't know what he's talking about, but I do because I live in this world, and endless myths and genealogies are things like, should we bring coffee in the sanctuary? Should we have pews? Should we not have Sunday night? Should we move to small groups instead of Sunday school? You think I'm kidding. Those are the things that are not even first level, second level, or third level importance, and they have no real resolution, and we just argue over them all the time. Our aim is a charge of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. It is so hard. You will go in the first year or two, it'll be hard. These year four and five, it'll probably get harder. And then it's really going to get hard. Whitfield used to say when he was street preaching, if they threw dead cats at me, that was a good day. Sometimes, as we are pastors, if someone sends us a text in all caps or they give our wife the stink eye because our kids aren't behaving we go home and try to send our resume somewhere else because we actually deserve to be someplace else. Yeah, we, we deserve to be an object of God's wrath for all eternity. That's what we deserve. And what we've received is eternal life and sonship and the amazing privilege to be his anointed under-shepherd in one of the most challenging, difficult places in the world. Send me to the hard place. The only time I'm going to have in this vapor of my life to serve my Lord and my God under tremendous oppression and, and, and difficulty and challenge and, and persecution is this vapor of a life I have right here. Once I go to heaven, I can never do that. I don't want to waste this life looking for an easy road. Go to a place that makes a difference. Go to a place where you can proclaim the God, God's glory once again. Go to a place where you can raise high the banner of God's glory. Go to a place where you can see the 20 or 30 elderly saints come back to their true love, which is Jesus Christ. Come back to their true joy, which is his church, and see that church begin to reach people right there in the community, right there in the neighborhood, and see a church come back to life that's a living testimony. Yeah, restaurants come and go, and, and, and retail establishments come and go, and neighborhoods come and go, but the church of Jesus Christ in that place stays there. Churches need to be in communities. We need those wells of living water. Jesus offered the Samaritan woman water that she would never thirst again. We got a lot of churches offering everything but the gospel. 
A lot of other mainline churches, a lot of the world offering all kinds of experiences that make people thirsty all the time. Here we have the water that they will never thirst again. And it's been stopped up by Satan. And it's our job. It's our privilege. It's our joy to go dig again those wells and see that water come forth and see that desert once again become a beautiful and green and lush place of life. Abundant, eternal, and everlasting. God, would you this morning, according to your infinite love, overwhelm us with the realization of the inheritance that is to each of us according to your riches in glory through Christ Jesus. God, would you even now raise up from this place those who would preach Christ Simply, boldly, and with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, send them to these dying churches to be your instrument through which you will bring great days of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Lord, shake this earth with the power of God. Lord, would you save and convert our cities, these terrible, wicked, broken cities? Would Would you save and convert these small towns and villages, these hopeless places where people live? Lord, may they hear the word of God and live. But most of all, Lord, would you revive and, yes, even convert dying churches that they then can convert the world. Father, deal with those that depart from the faith and grieve the Holy Spirit. Bring them back again to their first love. Oh, and may Christ be fully and faithfully preached everywhere for the glory of his name, for it is that wonderful and powerful and priceless, lovely name that we pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen.